Section 10 of the Assault on Mount Everest, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922, by various authors. Section 10. The Highest Camp, by George Mallory. Part 1. 4. The situation of Camp 3 when we reached it early in the afternoon was not calculated to encourage me, though I suppose it might be found congenial by hardier men. We had turned the corner of the North Peak so that the steep slopes of its eastern arm rose above us to north and west. Our tents were to be pitched on the stones that have rolled down these slopes onto the glacier and just out of range of a stonefall from the rocks immediately above us. A shallow trough divided us from the main plateau of the glacier and up this trough the wind was blowing. Since a higher current was hurrying the clouds from the normal direction, northwest, we might presume that this local variation was habitual. But wind we could hardly expect to escape from one direction or another. A more important consideration, perhaps, for a mountain camp, is the duration of sunshine. Here we should have the sun early, for to the east we looked across a wide snowy basin to the comparatively low mountains round about the Lac Pala but we should lose it early too, and we observed with dismay on this first afternoon that our camp was in shadow at 3.15 p.m. The water supply was conveniently near, running in a trough, and we might expect it to be unfrozen for several hours each day. Whatever we might think of this place, it was undoubtedly the best available. Very little energy remained among the party, most of whom had now reached 21,000 feet for the first time in their lives. However, a number soon set to work leveling the ground which we chose for two tents. It was necessary to do this work thoroughly, for, unlike the smooth, flat stones at Camp 1, these, like those at Camp 2, of which we had obtained sufficient experience during the previous night, were extremely sharp and uncomfortable to lie on. After it was done, we sent down the main body of the porters, keeping only one man for cook and each the man specifically attached to him as servant by Geoffrey Bruce's command long ago in Darjeeling. With these, we proceeded to order our camp. The tents were pitched. Some sort of a cookhouse was constructed from the wealth of building material, and we also began to put up walls behind which we could lie in shelter to eat our meals. Perhaps the most important matter was the instruction of Poo, our cook, in the correct use of the Primus stove. With the purpose of giving him confidence, a fine fountain of blazing paraffin was arranged and at once extinguished by opening the safety valve. For the conservation of our fuel supply, we carefully showed him how the absolute alcohol must be used to warm the burner while paraffin and petrol were to be mixed for combustion. Fortunately, his intelligence rose above those disagreeable agitations which attend the roaring, or the failure to roar, of primus stoves, so that after these first explanations, we had never again to begrime our hands with paraffin and soot. In our tent this evening of May 12th, Somerville and I discussed what we should do. There was something to be said for taking a day's rest at this altitude before attempting to rise another 2,000 feet. Neither of us felt at his best. After our first activities in camp, I had made myself comfortable with my legs in the sleeping bag. Somerville, with his accustomed energy, had been exploring at some distance. 
He had walked as far as the broad pass on the far side of our snowy basin, the Ripie La, at the foot of Everest's northeast ridge, and had already begun a sketch of the wonderful view obtained from that point of Makalu. When he returned to camp about 5.30 p.m., he was suffering from a headache and made a poor supper. Moreover, we were full of doubts about the way up to the North Call. After finding so much ice on the glacier, we must expect to find ice on those east-facing slopes below the call. It was not unlikely that we should be compelled to cut steps the whole way up, and several days would be required for so arduous a task. We decided, therefore, to lose no time in establishing a track to the North Call. It was our intention on the following morning, May 13th, to take with us two available porters, leaving only our cook and camp, and so make a small beginning towards the supply of our next camp. But Somerville's man was sick and could not come with us. We set out in good time with only my porter, Dasno, and carried with us, besides one small tent, a large coil of spare rope and some wooden pegs about 18 inches long. As we made our way up the gently sloping snow, it was easy to distinguish the line following to the North Call after the monsoon last year a long slope at a fairly easy angle bearing away to the right or north, a traverse to the left, and a steep slope leading up to the shelf under the ice cliff on the skyline. With the sun behind us, we saw the first long slope, nearly 1,000 feet, glittering in a way that snow will never glitter. There we should find only blue ice, bare and hard. Further to the north was no better, and as we looked at the steep final slope, it became plain enough that there and nowhere else was the necessary key to the whole ascent. For to the south of an imaginary vertical line drawn below it, it was a hopeless series of impassable cliffs. The more we thought about it, the more convinced we became that an alternative way must be found up to this final slope. We had not merely to reach the North Call once. Whatever way we chose must be used for all the comings and goings to and from a camp up there. Unless the connection between camps three and four were free from serious obstacles, the whole problem of transport would increase enormously in difficulty. Every party of porters must be escorted by climbers both up and down, and even so the dangers on a big ice slope after a fall of snow would hardly be avoided. Endeavoring to trace out a satisfactory route from the shelf of the North Call downwards, we soon determined that we should make use of a sloping corridor lying some distance to the left of the icy line used last year, and apparently well covered with snow. For three or four hundred feet above the flat snowfield, it appeared to be cut off by very steep ice slopes. Nevertheless, the best hope was to attempt an approach more or less direct to the foot of this corridor, and first we must reconnoiter the steepest of these obstacles, which promised the most convenient access to the desired point could we climb it? Here, fortune favored our enterprise. We found the surface slightly cleft by a fissure slanting at first to the right and then directly upwards. In the disintegrated substance of its edges, it was hardly necessary to cut steps, and we mounted 250 feet of what threatened to be formidable ice with no great expenditure of time and energy. Two lengths of rope were now fixed for the security of future parties the one hanging directly downwards from a single wooden peg driven in almost to the head, and another on a series of pegs for the passage of a leftward traverse which brought us to the edge of a large crevasse. We were now able to let ourselves down into the snow which choked this crevasse a little distance below its edges, and by means of some large steps hewn in the walls and another length of rope, a satisfactory crossing was established. Above this crevasse, 
we mounted easy snow to the corridor. So far as the shelf which was our objective, we now met no serious difficulty. The gentle angle steepened for a short space where we were obliged to cut a score of steps in hard ice. We fixed another length of rope, and again the final slope was steep, but not so as to trouble us. However, the condition of the snow was not perfect. We were surprised, on a face where so much ice appeared, to find any snow that was not perfectly hard. And yet we were usually breaking a heavy crust and stamping down the steps in snow deep enough to cover our ankles. It was a question rather of strength than of skill. An east-facing slope in the heat and glare of the morning sun favors the enemy mountain sickness. And though no one of us three was sick, our lassitude increased continually as we mounted, and it required as much energy as we could muster to keep on stamping slowly upwards. We lay down at length on the shelf, not yet shaded by the ice cliff above it, in a state of considerable exhaustion. Here, presumably, was the end of a day's work satisfactory in the most important respect, for we felt that the way we had found was good enough, and with the fixed ropes was suitable for use under almost any conditions. It occurred to us after a little interval and some light refreshment that one thing yet remained to be done. The lowest point of the North Call, from which the North Ridge of Everest springs a little way to the south of our shelf, is perhaps ten minutes' walk. We ought to go just so far as that in order to make quite sure of the way onward. In the direction of the northeast shoulder, now slightly east of south from us, the shelf slopes gradually upwards, a ramp, as it were, alongside the battlements almost attaining the level of the crest itself. In the whirl of snow and wind on that bitter day of September 1921, Bullock, Wheeler, and I had found it necessary, in order actually to gain this level, to take a few steps to the right round the head of a large crevasse slanting across our line to the north call. Somerville and I soon found ourselves confronted by the same crevasse and prepared to evade it by the same maneuver. But during those intervening months, the crack had extended itself some distance to the right and prevented the possibility of getting round at that end. It was also much too wide to be leapt. The best chance was in the other direction. Here we were able to work our way down before the steep slopes plunge over towards the head of the East Rongbuk Glacier to a snow bridge within the crevasse giving access to a fissure in its opposite wall. We carefully examined the prospects of an ascent at this point. Our idea was to go up in the acute angle between two vertical walls of ice. A ladder of footsteps and finger holds would have to be constructed in the ice, and even so the issue would be doubtful. When we set against the severe labor, our present state of weakness and considered the consequences of a step into the gulf of the crevasse while steps were being cut, how poor a chance only one man could have of pulling out his companion, it was clear that a performance of this kind must wait for a stronger party. In any case, we reckoned, this was not a way which could safely be used by laden porters. If it must be used, we should apply to General Bruce for a 15-foot ladder, more permanent than any we could make in the ice, and no doubt the mechanical ingenuity so much in evidence at the base camp would devise a ladder both portable and strong. Even this thought failed to inspire us with perfect confidence, and it seemed rather a long way to have come from England to Mount Everest to be stopped by an obstacle like this. But was there no possible alternative? On this side of the crust we had nothing more to hope, but on the far side could we reach it? 
there might exist some other shelf crowning the west-facing slopes of the call and connecting with the lowest point. We retraced our steps, going now in the opposite direction with a battlement on our left. Beyond, there was a snow slope ascending toward the formidable ridge of the North Peak. The crevasse guarding it was filled with snow and presented no difficulty, and though the slope was steep, we were able to make a staircase up the edge of it and presently found ourselves on the broken ground of the northern end of the crest. As we turned back toward Everest, a huge crevasse was in our way. A narrow bridge of ice took us across it, and we found we were just able to leap another crevasse a few yards further. We had now an uninterrupted view of all that lies to the west. Below us was the head of the main Rongbuk Glacier. On the skyline to the left was a prodigious northwest ridge of Everest, flanked with snow, hiding the crest of the west peak. Past the foot of the northwest ridge, we looked down the immense glacier flowing southwestwards into Nepal and saw without distinguishing them the distant ranges beyond. Near at hand, a sharp edge of rocks, the buttress of Changxi falling abruptly to the Rongbuk Glacier, blocked out vision of the two greatest mountains northwest of Everest, Gaiacheng Kang, 25,990 feet, and Cho Yuo, 26,367. But we could feel no regret for this loss, so enchanted were we by the spectacle of Pumori, though its summit, 23,190, was little higher than our own level, it was, as it always is, a singularly impressive sight. The snow cap of Pomori is supported by splendid architecture. The pyramidal bulk of the mountain, the steep fall of the ridges and faces to south and west, and the precipices of rock and ice towards east and north are set off by a whole chain of mountains extending west-northwest along a frail, fantastic ridge, unrivaled anywhere in this district for the elegant beauty of its cornices and towers. No more striking change of scenery could be imagined than this from all we saw to the east. The gentle snowy basin, the unemphatic lines of the slopes below and on either side of the Lak Pala, dominated as they are by the dullest of mountains, Katarfu, the even fall of rocks and snow from the east ridge of Changxi and from the northeast ridge of Everest. Pomori itself stood only as a symbol of this new wonderful world before our eyes as we stayed to look westwards. A world exciting, strange, unearthly, fantastic as the skyscrapers in New York City, and at the same time possessing the dignity of what is enduring and immense. For no end was visible or even conceivable to this kingdom of adventure. However, even Somerville's passion for using colored chalks did not encourage him to stay long inactive in a place designed to be a funnel for the west wind of Tibet at an elevation of about 23,000 feet. We sped again over snow-covered montacules thrust out from the chaos of riven ice and at last looked down from one more prominent little summit to the very nape of the Chang La. We saw our conjectured shelf and real existence in a fair way before us. In a moment, all our doubts were eased. We knew that the foot of the North Ridge, by which alone we could approach the summit of Mount Everest, was not beyond our reach. Dasno, meanwhile, was stretched in the snow on the sheltered shelf, which clearly must serve us sooner or later for Camp 4. As we looked down upon him from the battlements, we noticed that their shadow already covered the greater part of the shelf. It was 4 o'clock. We must delay no longer. 
The tent which Dasno had carried up was left to be the symbol of our future intentions, and we hastened down. Since 7 a.m., Somerville and I had been spending our strength with only one considerable halt, and latterly at a rapid rate. For some hours now, we had felt the dull, height headache which results from exertion with too little oxygen, a symptom, I am told, not unlike the effect of poisoning by carbon monoxide. The unpleasing symptom became so increasingly disagreeable as we came down that I was very glad to reach our tent again. As it was only fair that Somerville should share all my sufferings, it now seemed inconsiderate of him to explain that he had a good appetite. For my part, I took a little soup and could face no food. Defeated for the first and last time in either expedition before the sight of supper, I humbly swallowed a dose of aspirin, lay my head on the pillow, and went to sleep. 5. For three days now we made no expedition of any consequence. The question arises then, what did we? I have been searching the meager entries in my journal for an answer, with no satisfactory result. The doctrine that men should be held accountable for their days, or even their hours, is one to which the very young often subscribe as a matter of course, seeing in front of them such a long way to go and so little time. The futility of exact accounts in this sort is apparent among mountains. The span of human life appears so short as to hardly be capable of the usual subdivisions, and a much longer period than a day may be neglected as easily as a halfpenny in current expenditure. And while some hours and days are spent in doing, others pass in simply being or being evolved, a process in the mind not to be measured in terms of time. Nevertheless, it is often interesting to draft a balance sheet covering a period of 24 hours or seven days, if only to see how much must truthfully be set down as unaccounted. In the present instance, my first inclination is to write off in this bold fashion a full half of the time we spent in Camp 3, but I will try to serve my accounts better cooked. The largest item in a balance of hours, even the least frank, will always be sleep. Here I prefer to make the entry under the heading, Bed. This will enable me to write off at once a minimum of 14 or a maximum of 16 hours, leaving me only 8 to 10 hours to account for. It is also a simplification, because I am able by this means to avoid a doubtful and perhaps an ugly heading, Dozing. No one will ask me to describe exactly what goes on in bed. At Camp 3, it will be understood that supper is always included, but not breakfast for as the breakfasting hour is the most agreeable in the day, it must be spent out of doors in the warm sun. Supper, unlike most activities, takes less time than in civilized life. Wasted minutes allow the food to cool and the grease to congeal. The porter serving us would not want to be standing about longer than necessary, and the whole performance was expeditious. Perhaps the fashion of eating among mountaineers is also more wolfish than among civilized men. The remaining thirteen and a half or fourteen and a half hours were not all spent in sleep. Probably on the night of May 13-14, I slept at least ten hours after the exertions of our ascent to the North Call. But though one sleeps well and is refreshed by sleep in a tent at an altitude to which one is sufficiently acclimatized, the outside world is not so very far away. However well accustomed to such scenes, one does not easily lose a certain excitement from the mere presence beyond the open tent door of the silent power of frost, suspending even the life of the mountains, 
and of the black ridges cutting the space of stars. The slow spinning web of unconscious thought is nearer consciousness. One wakes in the early morning with a mind more definitely gathered about a subject, looks out to find the stars still bright or dim in the first flush of dawn, and because the subject, whatever it be, and however nearly connected with the one absorbing problem, commands less concentrated attention, for the unwilled effort of the mind is more dispersed, one may often fall asleep once more and stay in a light intermittent slumber until the bright sun is up and the tent begins to be warm again. No sleeper, as far as I know on this second expedition, could compete either for quantity or quality with the sleep of Guy Bullock on the first, but all, perhaps with different habits from either his or mine, but at all events all who spent several nights at this camp or higher, slept well and were refreshed by sleep, and I hope they were no less grateful than I for those blessed nights. I often remarked during the expedition how large a part of a day had been spent by some of us in conversation. Down at the base camp, we would often sit on, those of us who were not expert photographers or painters or naturalists, sit indefinitely not only after dinner, but after each succeeding meal, talking the hours away. When a man has learned to deal firmly with an imperious conscience, he will be neither surprised nor ashamed in such circumstances to enter in his diary so many hours talking and listening. It is true that conscience has the right to demand, in the case of such an entry, that the subjects talked about should also be named. But our company was able to draw upon so wide a range of experience that a fair proportion of our subjects were worth talking of. Perhaps in the higher camps there was a tendency to talk, though less from active brains, for the sake of obliterating the sense of discomfort. However, I believe that most men, once they have faced the change from armchairs and spring mattresses and solid walls and hot baths and drawers for their clothes and shelves for their books, do not experience discomfort in camp life except in the matter of feeding. However good your food and however well cooked, sooner or later in this sort of life, meals appear messy. The most unsatisfactory circumstance of our meals at the base camp was the tables. In a country where wood is so difficult to obtain, you cannot construct solid tables, still less can you afford to carry them. Our ingenious X tables had thin iron legs and canvas tops. On the rough ground, they were altogether too light, too easily disturbed, and for this reason, too many of our victuals aired onto these tables. Their surfaces appeared under our eyes with constantly accumulating stains, but half rubbed out by a greasy rag. Efforts truly were made to control the nightly flow proceeding from X and Y in their cups. Had they been but cups of beer or whiskey, we might have minded a little enough. But the sticky soiling mess was soup or cocoa. Offenders were freely cursed. Tables were scrubbed. Tablecloths were produced. In the long run, no efforts availed. If the curry were tasty and the plate clean, who would complain of a dirty tablecloth at the impurification of which he had himself assisted. But I have little doubt that this circumstance, more than any gradual drift of the mountaineer back towards the Stone Age, was to be held accountable for the visible deterioration of our table manners. With no implication of insult to General Bruce and Dr. Longstaff, I record my belief that our manners at Camp 3 were better than those at the base camp. It may suggest a lower degree of civilization that men should be seated on the ground at boxes for eating rather than on boxes at a table. 
On the contrary, the nice adjustment of a full plate upon one's lap, or the finer art of conveying and forking in the mouthfuls which start so much further from the face, requires a delicacy, if it is to be accomplished at all, which continually restrains the grosser impulses. And, though it might be supposed that as we went higher up the mountain we should come to feeling entirely sans facon, it was my experience that the greater difficulties at the higher altitudes in satisfying the appetite continually promoted more civilized habits of feeding. To outward appearance, perhaps, the sight of four men each with a spoon eating out of a common saucepan of spaghetti would not be altogether reassuring. But one must not leave out of the reckoning the gourmet's peculiar enjoyment in the steamy aroma from things cooked and eaten before any wanton hand has served them on a dish, still less the finer politeness required by several persons sharing the same pots in this manner. On the whole, therefore, we suffered, either morally, aesthetically, or physically, little enough in the matter of meals, still less from any other cause. The bitter wind, it is true, was constantly disagreeable, but such wind deadens even the senses that dislike it, and the wind of Tibet was admirable both as an excuse for and necessary contrast with luxurious practices. Just as one most enjoys a fire when half aware of unpleasant things outside, or is most disgusted by a stuffy room after breathing the soft air of a southwest wind, so in Tibet one may delight merely in being warm anywhere. Neatly to avoid the disagreeable is in itself a keen pleasure and heightens the desire for active life. It was only rarely, very rarely, that one suffered of necessity, and generally, if a man were cold, he was himself to blame. Either he had failed to put on clothes enough for the occasion, or had failed, having put them on, to stimulate circulation. In a sleeping bag such as we had this year, with soft flannel lining the quilted eiderdown, one need not be chilled even by the coldest night, and to lie in a tent no bigger than will just hold two persons, with twenty degrees of frost inside and forty without, snugly defying cold and wind, to experience at once in this situation the keen bite of the air and the warm glow in one's extremities, gives a delicious sense of well-being and true comfort, never to be so acutely provoked even in the armchair at an English fireside. But to return to the subject from which I have naughtily digressed, time passed swiftly enough for Somerville and me at Camp 3. We did not keep the ball rolling so rapidly and continuously to and fro as it was wont to roll in the United Mess, but we found plenty to say to one another, more particularly after supper, in the tent. We entered upon a serious discussion of our future prospects on Mount Everest, and were both feeling so brave and hardy after a day's rest that we decided, if necessary, to meet the transport difficulty halfway and do without a tent in any camp we should establish above the North Call, and so reduce the burden to be carried up to Camp 4 to three rather light or two rather heavy loads. Our conversation was further stimulated by two little volumes which I had brought up with me. The one, Robert Bridges' anthology, The Spirit of Man, and the other, one-seventh of the complete works of William Shakespeare, including Hamlet and King Lear. It was interesting to test the choice made in answer to the old question, what book would you take to a desert island? Though in this case, it was a desert glacier, and the situation demanded rather lighter literature than prolonged edification might require on the island. The trouble about lighter literature is that it weighs heavier because more has to be provided. 
Neither of my books would be to everyone's taste in a camp at 21,000 feet, but the spirit of man, read aloud now by one of us and now by the other, suggested matters undreamt of in the philosophy of Mount Everest and enabled us to spend one evening very agreeably. On another occasion, I had the good fortune to open my Shakespeare at the very place where Hamlet addresses the ghost. Angels and ministers of grace defend us, I began, and the theme was so congenial that we stumbled on enthusiastically reading the parts in turn through half the play. Besides reading and talking, we found a number of things to do. The ordering of even so small a camp as this may occupy a good deal of attention. Stores will have to be checked and arranged in some way as to be easily found when wanted. One article or another is sure to be missing, too often to be retrieved when it lies on the stones only after prolonged search, and even to find a strayed stocking groped for on hands and knees in the congested tent may take a considerable time. Again, the difficult and important problem of meals will have to be considered in connection with the use of available food supplies. We have one ox tongue. Shall we open it today, or ought we keep it to take up with us? And so on. But with a number of details to be arranged, I was impressed not so much by the amount of energy and attention which they demanded, as by the time taken to do any little thing, and most of all to write. Undoubtedly, one is slower in every activity, and in none so remarkably slower as in writing. The greater part of a morning might easily be consumed in writing one letter of perhaps a half dozen pages. In referring to my own slowness, particularly mental slowness, I must hasten to exclude my companion. His most important activity when we were not on the mountain was sketching. His vast supply of energy, the number of sketches he produced, and oil paintings besides, was only less remarkable than the rapidity with which he worked. On May 14, he again walked over the uncurvassed snowfield by himself to the Ripia La. Later on, I joined him, and, so far as I could judge, his talent and energy were no less at 21,000 feet than on the windswept plains of Tibet. End of Section 10 Read by Paul Hampton